Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you um, just for the words of that song uh, in the midst of difficult seasons, in the midst of uncertainty, um, chaos, loss, grief, sickness. God, in seasons where it might be difficult to trust you, God, it brings so much peace and joy to be able to rest in you and to recognize, God, that you are in full control. That there is nothing that surprises you. There's nothing that catches you off guard. God, to be able to say it is not that it is well because of who you are, even in the midst of maybe a season where everyone else would say it is certainly not well. Um, is just a testament to who you are. I pray, God, that you would, uh, through the power of your spirit, that you would teach us how to have that kind of faith, Um, the kind of faith that uh, rests everything on you rather than the the shifting sand of our own uh, whims or just this world in general, God, to, to build everything on, on the strong, solid foundation of who you are. We love you, Father. We pray that you speak to us this morning through the truth of your word. Uh, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Uh, welcome to Covenant Church this morning. My name's Weston. Um, and I think our older kids are going to be staying in here with us this morning. So welcome to you guys as well. Uh, We're going to go to uh, the book of Jonah chapter 4. As Luke mentioned earlier, we're wrapping up Jonah today after five weeks uh, of going through this book. And we wrap up today with what I believe is the most interesting and convicting chapter of this entire book. Um, and, And I don't have a clue how many times I've had the opportunity to teach on Jonah or how many times I've heard Jonah taught But every time uh, I dig into it, I feel like it speaks to me in new and different ways. And this is a total, like, preacher guy thing to say, but we could easily spend five weeks on this one chapter. It's it's that rich. There's so much depth here. Um, But we're going to try to knock it out today. Um, And before we get into the text, I just want to quickly recap where we're at in the storyline. Thus far, uh, the prophet Jonah... Uh, has been called by God to go to the Assyrian city of Nineveh and to call out against the city. Jonah, however, uh, as you probably remember, does not obey God. And instead, he tries to flee from the Lord. Physically, geographically, he runs away from God. Um, And it's important for us to note that early in the story, we don't really know Jonah's full motivation for running away from God. Uh, There's a lot of speculation. We can guess at what the situation might be. All we know is that God, early on, all all we know is God calls Jonah, and Jonah doesn't do it. Jonah runs away from God. Uh, This city of Nineveh, uh, which would be located uh, in present-day Iraq, Um, was a city that was known for its brutality. Uh, These were people who were known for their violence, especially in battle. Uh, They were a conquering people. We can speculate that Jonah perhaps thought that God was sending him to his death. We don't know. Um, 
But we learn, ultimately, uh, that Jonah hated the people of Nineveh. And so he boards a ship bound for the, the city of Tarshish, which, not surprisingly, was in the opposite direction from Nineveh. And a great storm arises, and the sailors, the polytheistic sailors who are on this boat, all start crying out to their own gods. And Jonah says, listen, if you will just kill me, if you'll just throw me into the ocean, you guys will be saved. Everything will be okay. Jonah, I think, at this point is thinking, I've obviously disobeyed God. God is obviously angry with me. That's the reason the storm has come about. God wants me dead one way or another. He's either going to send me to Nineveh or he's going to kill me with this storm. So why don't you guys just go ahead and end my life now. Throw me into the ocean. And then God does this incredible thing. He uh, appoints, Scripture says, a fish to swallow Jonah. And in doing so, God saves his life, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. Often what we think of as punishment for Jonah, for not doing what God called him to do, is actually salvation for Jonah. Because in the midst of trying to end his life, God saves his life by appointing this fish to swallow him. And Jonah spends three days inside the fish. Chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer to God, his prayer of thanksgiving uh, that God has saved his life inside the belly of the fish. And then this fish spits. Jonah out onto dry land and once again we kind of start back at the beginning and it says and God called Jonah to go and call out against the city of Nineveh and this time Jonah goes this is chapter 3 Jonah goes to Nineveh Um, he I don't think he puts a whole lot into this message that God has given him he just kind of comes in and says hey listen uh, in 40 days if you guys don't get your stuff together God's going to blow this place up God's going to destroy the city it's all going to be over. Uh, that's his message. Um, and, and, and then Jonah sets up shop outside the city of Nineveh. And this is where we pick up today in chapter 3. I want to read the last verse of chapter 3 just to give us some context. Last verse of chapter 3 says this. When God saw what they did, the people of Nineveh, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. We go right into chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I, I made haste to flee to Tarshish, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. 
And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant. For which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So what an abrupt way to end this book, right? It seems like there should be another line there, but there's not. So what we said two weeks ago was that chapter 2 and chapter 4 of Jonah are are kind of like forgotten chapters. Because oftentimes when this book is summarized or paraphrased, uh, these chapters are are maybe not totally left out, but they're kind of disregarded. Oftentimes uh, we we just look at the story of Jonah as being the story of a guy who didn't want to do what God said. uh, So maybe God punished him or God got his attention. And so finally he goes and does what God called him to do. And amazing things happen. The people of this great and yet terrible city actually repent and and follow the Lord. They give themselves over to God in uh, chapter 3. And yet, to paraphrase the story in that way is to totally neglect this last chapter. And, And I think when you neglect this last chapter, you miss the point of the entire book of Jonah. This is the key in many ways uh, to this epic book that abruptly ends talking about cattle. It's in chapter 4 where we truly meet Jonah. Uh, It's in chapter 4 where I meet myself as well. And the key question and the question that we will be asking ourselves today is the question that God repeatedly asked Jonah in this chapter. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? So let's walk through what's happening here and then we'll make a few observations. So first, uh, Jonah is furious that the people of Nineveh have not only listened to his message, but they have believed it and they have taken steps of repentance in response to Jonah's message. Now remember his message was, God's giving you guys 40 days. If, in the course of 40 days, you don't get it together, then destruction is coming. But amazingly, the people of Nineveh actually listen to what Jonah has to say, and they go into mourning for their own sin. And and just for a minute, I want us to consider just how improbable this is, that one guy who is not a part of the community would actually come into this city of 120 or 150 or however many people, 1,000 people, that he would come into the midst of this city and declare a message of destruction and people would go into mourning for their sin and actually repent of their sin. In previous weeks, we've likened Nineveh to North Korea and ISIS and, and like all of these terrible people groups, these terroristic people groups in today's world. And, and just think about how improbable it would be that you or I would be uh, uh, sent into the midst of one of these groups of people with this message of destruction, and people would go, oh, where has this been all our life? Like, we've got to follow, we've got to turn from all of these other, how improbable is that? 
We would never in a million years think that would happen, and yet that's exactly what happens for Jonah. But realize that um, there's so much that we don't know here. There's so much that we don't know about Jonah. We have zero backstory. We would assume that if God sends a prophet uh, to declare a message to a particular group of people and that that message would actually take hold and that that person, that prophet, would have the opportunity to see the change that the message that he has declared has impacted on a group of people, that that would be a moment of exultation and praise to God for who God is and what God does. But Jonah, however, is furious that God has moved and that his message has been effective. Like this is the opposite of most of the other Old Testament prophets. Like if you look at guys like Jeremiah, it's this life spent declaring a message that no one wants to hear and and facing persecution and rejection from other people because of this message that you bring. Most often prophets are hated people. Prophets are people that others want gone because they're truth tellers. Jonah has the opposite experience. People, it's like he doesn't even have to say it. People are primed and ready for this message of repentance. But we have zero backstory on Jonah. We don't know why Jonah feels this way. And I just wonder, like, what kind of horrific thing, what kind of horrific thing has to take place in your life to put you in a position where you would rather die than see God save an entire group of people? Like, what has happened to you that you would rather commit suicide than see God save an entire city of people, no matter who that is or how terrible they are? Like, wouldn't it be more amazing the more terrible they were, right? Wouldn't you want to see that happen? Can you imagine a scenario where Jonah would somehow be justified in his behavior? You know, I just wonder, what if chapter 1, verse 1, actually said this? Following the brutal murder of his entire family at the hands of the Assyrian people, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, go to the city of Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. What if we had just a little piece, hypothetically, a little more to Jonah's story there? Would we somehow understand him more? Well, of course he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Of course he wants to die. Of course he's angry when the people repent and God relents. They, they killed his whole family, right? What if that happened? I think it's interesting that we don't get that piece of the story. I think it's interesting that that's left somewhat ambiguous to us. Even though we don't know where Jonah's hatred comes from, here's the truth. We, as a people, understand and identify far more with revenge narratives than with forgiveness narratives or grace narratives. Let me say that again. We understand and identify far more with revenge narratives than with forgiveness or grace narratives. What do I mean? Think about some of your favorite action movies. A couple of my favorite action movies are Gladiator uh, and The Patriot. 
Like, those, those are just two, I love those movies. They're fantastic movies. Um, one of the things I was thinking about as I was thinking about this story is that both of those movies are, are stories about men who have had their families taken from them. Uh, they've had their family members killed at the hands of other evil men. And there is no more satisfying scene in either of those movies than, than like the climax where the lead character is finally face to face with the person who murdered their family. And they finally, after going on this quest, they have them and they get to kill them. Like that's the moment everybody's waiting for. In The Patriot, there's that scene where Mel Gibson is finally face-to-face with the man who killed his family, and he takes his bayonet, and he like slowly sticks it through this guy's throat, and it's like, it's like the most, it's, it's like the movie slows down in that moment, and you go, yeah! Like, finally, you got this guy. Like, after this whole time, you know, two hours of, of trying to finally just get face-to-face with him, and now, like, let's just savor it. Like, we somehow identify with that. What if, what if that scene uh, had Mel Gibson face-to-face with this guy, and Mel goes, brother, can I tell you about how much Jesus loves you? Right? Those movies don't sell tickets. That doesn't happen. We walk out angry and unsatisfied. Jonah says, God, this is exactly why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. Notice that this is, this is like praise of God in the midst of anger towards God. Jonah says, God, I knew you were good. I knew you were patient. I knew you would like have this forbearance with these people. I knew you would lead them to repentance. I knew you would save them. I knew you were this awesome, sovereign God. I knew all of these things. That's why I didn't want to go. I want to see them dead. I want to see them destroyed. And what's interesting here is that God is characterized throughout Scripture as caring deeply about justice, and yet it is as if Jonah feels as if God has acted somehow unjustly. Almost as if allowing the people of Nineveh to live is unjust because of what they have done. As if it is unfair. We'll come back to that thought in a minute. So Jonah declares his message, and then he goes and he sets up shop outside the city. Scripture says he is east of the city, which means he's on the opposite side of the city from which he entered. It's almost like he's kind of passed straight through the city, and now he's in the high country. He's setting up camp so that he can watch to see what will happen. And this is apparently still within this 40-day window that God has given the people. 40 days to change or there will be destruction. And, and so I think Jonah's still holding out hope here that even though he's seen some signs of repentance, even though they've, you know, like put on sackcloth and, and, and sat in ashes and they're taking on this posture of mourning that, that maybe it will be short-lived and maybe God will still destroy everything. I think that's his hope. In fact, one commentator says that perhaps a more faithful rendering of verse 5 would read this way. Jonah not yet abandoning his hope of seeing the city punished, makes for himself a hut outside the walls and waits there to see the issue. Still holding out hope. 
right? That God will kill everybody. Isn't that amazing? Look at verse 6. It says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm, and that worm attacked the plant, and so it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah. And so he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? Again, this question. Do you do well to be angry? The message paraphrase of the Bible renders this question as, what right do you have to be angry? What right do you have to be angry? A few things I want us to consider this morning. First of all, God's sovereignty. If Jonah is anything, it is a book that declares and celebrates the sovereignty of God. God's all-powerful nature. Chapter 1, verse 3, God hurled a great wind onto the sea. God created the storm. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. God brings this fish about. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. God again at work. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, he relented of the disaster that he said he would do to to them. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord appointed a plant. Uh, Verse 7, when the dawn came, God appointed a worm. Uh, Later, God appoints the scorching east wind. So, So notice... Notice here, God is the only one who is truly in control throughout this entire book. Jonah is out of control. The Ninevites are out of control. The only person who is in control is God. God is the one who is moving and acting sovereignly throughout this whole book. God will do what he wants. God sees things differently than you and I. God views our enemies differently than you and I. God uh, views the things we love differently than you and I. God is supreme. God is all-powerful. God's will will be done. He is sovereign. We also see God's love. And hopefully it will come as no surprise to us that God loves all people, right? Hopefully we know that. Hopefully we see that throughout Scripture, that God loves his entire creation. That doesn't mean that God will save everyone. That's clearly contingent on faith and repentance. But God deeply loves and cares for all people. And yet because we are arrogant, we assume that God loves us more and our enemies less, right? God loves us more and our enemies less. Is that true? We just assume that he cares more about us than people who, you know, perform abortions or pedophiles or murderers or terrorists or people who work for Comcast. We just assume that God loves us more than he does them because we think we're better than they are. But where do we get this theology? 
Anne Lamott said, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that he hates all the same people you do. Israel deeply struggled with this in the Old Testament. God said, you are my people, but that didn't mean I love you more than other people. It meant I want you to reflect as a nation my nature, my character, my love, so that you as a nation, as my people, might be a blessing to all nations, right? That was one of the promises that he made to Abraham. That's one of the things that he wanted for Israel, that they would be a refuge for the immigrant the refugee, the sojourner, the widow, the orphan, that other people would come to the nation of Israel and find the heart and character of God and find peace and refuge. But instead, this became a point of spiritual arrogance for the Jews and they became deeply nationalistic and racist. The list of people groups that they would not associate with or that they considered to be subhuman Uh, or supremely corrupt, was long. And perhaps one of Jesus' more shocking parables to them was a story about how a Samaritan showed mercy to a robbery victim. Aren't all Samaritans half-breed idiots? And yet in the parable, it is the Samaritan that actually reflects the very heart of Jesus. It's the Samaritan that pulls the victim out of the ditch and cleans him up and pays for all of his needs even though he had no obligation to this person. It's it's a person from a people group that was despised and rejected and in many situations completely like, like like unobserved by the Jews. They just acted like they almost didn't even exist. It was that person who reflected the heart of Jesus in Jesus' story. God cares deeply about the Ninevites, even though they had done terrible things. And thank God, he cares about me, even though I have done terrible things. And you may say, yeah, but you aren't a murderer like them, and you haven't killed women and children, and you haven't raped and pillaged, and you haven't burned cities to the ground or skinned people alive, or all these terrible things that they were known for doing. But what happens is, guys, we assign degrees of severity to sin. And often we do this in such a way that it's based on what offends us. We assign degrees of severity to sin based on what offends us. And we concoct a hierarchy of sin that is not found in Scripture. And what this allows us to do is to look down upon or condescend to other people while at the same time disregarding the ways ways that we have offended God. Because we've decided somehow our sin is less heinous to him than the sin of other people. Jonah's arrogance is seen in the fact that somehow he believes that the Ninevites deserve to die and and apparently he deserves to live. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a comma but some have really sinned and fall short of the glory. No, no, no. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And so we see God's sovereignty. We see God's love 
in that he loves all people and is for all people. And then thirdly, we see God's provision. Jonah makes a camp outside of the city and this vine begins to grow And it makes Jonah so happy. It makes his life better. It shields him from the sun. It makes him comfortable. And when God takes it away, he's furious. He tells God that he wishes he was dead because he's so angry about this plant. God, I don't want to live in a world where you save evil people, where you spare destruction... And yet I can't even get a plant to sit under. But God says, Jonah, at what point did you decide that you're entitled to an easy life? At what point did you decide that somehow you're entitled to something that this great city and the inhabitants of this great city are not also entitled to? And I would ask us, at what point did we decide that God's goodness means that he does what we want? At what point did we place a contingency on God's goodness? I don't know about you guys, but I grew up in a church where every week we would all repeat this super cheesy phrase. God is good all the time. Anybody? And all the time, God is good. It's like the epitome of cheesy American Christianity because we would say this phrase sitting in our multi-million dollar air-conditioned luxurious church building with, you know, the brass chandeliers. And what I think that meant to us is that God is good because we have money and we have comfort and because we have opportunity and our kids go to good schools and we eat whatever we want, whenever we want, But yet inherent in that phrase is this idea that, no, 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 no. God is good no matter what. God is good no matter what the circumstances of your life are, right? Because God's goodness is not contingent on your circumstances. It doesn't hinge on that. If your willingness to worship God as good, is solely based on your present situation, you will be a terrible worshiper because you will give him praise when you have the things that you think you deserve and you will be angry when you don't have the things that you feel entitled to. And God says, where do you get off being angry with me? It is the definition of irony and farce that we are the ones who have fallen short. We are the sinners. We are the ones who have offended a benevolent and gracious and loving God. And yet we say, God, how dare you? Our understanding of God's goodness must be rooted in our understanding of God's sovereignty. Because here's the deal. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. And what he wants to do is to love and save us despite the ways that we have offended him. That's why he is good. That's why he's good. 
That is the message of the gospel. That despite your present situation, despite what you've done, despite what you're pleased with or not pleased with, despite all of that, God, who could do whatever, has chosen to offer you an opportunity to be adopted into his family. He didn't have to do that. We would never do that for someone else because of our sin nature. But God doesn't struggle with that. God is perfect in all ways. And so amazingly, he extends this line of grace to us, even though we have deeply offended him. Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, and going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and he found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Listen, God does not conform to our human definitions of fairness. Because our definitions of fairness are often rooted in pride, entitlement, and privilege. And isn't this like us? The workers who were hired first don't congratulate the ones who had come later because they had somehow made the same amount of money. They don't go to them and say, wow, isn't this great for you? You didn't have to do all the same amount, same amount of work that I did, but yet you made the same amount of money. That's incredible. Hooray. Good for you. They don't do that. They begrudge the master because they felt entitled to more. They felt like they were better. They felt like they had done more. They felt like they had earned more. And what the master is trying to teach them is that none of you, no matter how much or how little work you have done for me, none of you is entitled to even one denarius. I give what belongs to me because I choose to give it. Listen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him wouldn't have to perish 
but could experience eternal life. We are the recipients of an incredible gift that we are in no way entitled to. It's not based on our effort. It's not based on our merit. It's not based on the amount of work that we've done. It's because the master chooses to give what belongs to him freely. And do we begrudge his generosity? All the time. All the time. The gospel says that even though we don't deserve it, God gives it freely anyway. And so God says, what right do you have to be angry with me? Right? What right do you have to be angry with me? What right do you have to be anything other than bold over by the generosity of our God. Jonah is a book that is full of metaphors. And, and so as we close today, I just want to pull out three questions, three metaphors um, posed in the form of a question. First, what is your ship? What is your ship? Remember in chapter one, Jonah flees from the Lord. He boards a ship bound for Tarshish. What is your escape route from the thing that you know God's called you to do that you just don't want to? How are you justifying the fact that you're running away? What is that thing that you're trying to find hope in even though you know it's not what God has for you? What is your ship? Secondly, what is your Nineveh? Who are the people that you believe you are better than? Who are the people that you look down on? Maybe you don't treat them poorly, but in your mind and in your heart, you think, well, they're different than me. Who are the people whom if God appeared to you in person and said, I am calling you to go here, you would say, no way. For some people, it's, it's their own family. Maybe it's your neighbors. Maybe you need to address some deep-seated racism. Maybe you need to address your feelings of entitlement. And then finally, what is your plant? What is your plant? What is the thing that you did not create even though you maybe believe you did. And now you feel entitled to it. Your job, uh, your money, uh, your education, opportunities in your life, uh, your spouse, I don't know. Um, I'll be real with you this morning. I think the answer to that question for me is my children. I think um, no matter how much... uh, I I think that I chose to have children or that I'm somehow responsible for their existence. I'm wrong. God has graciously chosen to bless me with children. And and just being honest, if, if he took them away tomorrow, I would struggle with anger towards him. 
but what right would I have to be angry with him? None. What is your plant? You know, these are heavy questions, but, but here's the truth, and here's, here's why we have no right to be angry with him. Um, what God has done for us through Jesus trumps everything else in our lives. What God has done for us through Jesus trumps everything else in our lives. It trumps the loss of loved ones. It trumps the loss of your job. It trumps horrible seasons. It trumps addiction and pain and suffering and terrorism and war and famine and the death of children. Even though all of these horrible things happen in our world as a result of the effects of sin, what we have to realize is that those are things we've caused. Those aren't things God has done. No, we're the ones who've chosen to go against him. From the very beginning, we're the ones who've chosen to create our own path. And so what right would we have to be angry with him? When in spite of all of that, he has given his only son. We have to come to this place where not only do we recognize that he's sovereign and that he's in control, we have to truly place our faith in the fact that he knows best. Or we can fight him at every turn because he isn't doing what we want to do. Listen, if we can let go of control, if we can let go of our delusions that we know better, how much more at peace would we be in life? I think this is part of the reason why Jesus often talks about us coming to him as children, right? This place of innocence, this place of just completely lacking control altogether. God's goodness is seen through the death and resurrection of Jesus and it trumps any bad thing that has ever happened in my life or your life. And so, I don't know if you guys are like me, but, but I need to be reminded of this constantly. Like on the daily. Because every day I wake up and, and I, I've decided that I'm in control and that I know better, and that I've got a plan for my life, and that if anything's going to succeed in my life, it's going to be because of me and my hard work or whatever. I don't know if you're like that, but that's, that's how I am. And so I'm so thankful for communion. Um, not as just this ritual that we just do because it's what we do, um, but because it's this beautiful picture of the fact that we have no right to be angry with God. And we have every right to celebrate him and honor him and give him praise and be bowled over by his graciousness in spite of us. 
And so let me pray for us this morning as we come to the table and uh, partake of these elements. Father, we thank you, God, for the truth of your word. Um, as you often do, Father, you are speaking to me, I think, primarily in these, in these words. And um, God, I pray that you would just help me uh, to learn to cooperate more with you rather than seeking my own path, rather than considering myself more highly than others or better than others or more deserving than others. God, I pray that you give me eyes to see, God, who I truly am and how amazing it is that you've done what you've done. We thank you for the reminder of communion and the beauty of the body and blood of Jesus broken for me, poured out for me, for the whole world. God, thank you for doing that. May we come to the table this morning in awe of who you are. In your name, amen.